let them eat cake. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. We're back. And David, you're a year older. I am. Big birthday on the weekend. Congratulations. Turning a year older. Happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. And without further ado, we should probably get to the podcast. That's what everyone is here for. So, David, I'll ask you the question. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 869. And Ali ibn Muhammad, a somewhat obscure poet, has returned to Basra. Okay, David. Basra's in Iraq. That much I know. That's correct, although in 869, of course, the modern nation of Iraq had not been drawn up. Okay, so the one thing I know, and it's not even that relevant, tell us a little bit more about this poet, David. Well, I suppose I was being a little bit flippant when I referred to Ali bin Muhammad as a somewhat obscure poet, although in 869... It's not really clear what, if anything, he would have been most famous for. He was an educated man by the standards of his time. That much we know it's referred to in the sources. And apparently at various times he had worked on astronomy, attempting to calculate latitudes and longitudes and other fairly standard scientific efforts of the day. He'd been involved in politics at the court in Samara, the court of the Abbasid Caliphate, which was the political power at the time. And he had tried to start revolts in several different provinces of the Abbasid Caliphate, including Basra, and been captured three times after trying and failing to start revolts, but had always been at some point able to either talk himself out of consequences or been let go when the government changed because the 1860s were a very tumultuous decade for the caliphate. So what was so tumultuous about the 860s in this caliphate. So the Abbasid Caliphate was one of the most powerful nations possibly on earth at the time. And that was because of the Muslim conquest of 200 years by this point since Muhammad had first preached his new religion and politically what's important there is that they had been able to spread rapidly militarily defeating at least in the early days both the byzantine empire and the sassanid persian empire and carving out enormous territories and enormous wealth and political power and obviously there's a lot more to the story of the 200 years than just continuous growth. But in many ways, if you were a Muslim looking back in 869, or perhaps better to say 859, you would have thought that yes, things had just been getting better. But underneath all that, the conquest, the perpetual conquest had bred an economy 
that was built in many ways on loot, on money coming in from the areas that they managed to conquer. But by the 830s, really much earlier than this part, the conquests started to dry up. There were fewer and fewer new victories. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but without money coming in, the caliphate started to feel financial pressure. There wasn't enough money to sustain the army that they paid. They had a paid standing army. And without the loot to support it, and with their tax revenues never really having been high enough to cover all of their costs on their own, they started running into problems, which led to a desire to downsize the military, which the military didn't like. Then, well, several caliphs got assassinated by their own military, which led to succession crises as it became unclear who the next caliph would be, which led to civil war. And so basically, by 869, in the past decade, from 859 to 869, there had been no fewer than six Abbasid caliphs, and all of them had died either by assassination or in battle. All right, David. So like many pirates, they've found out that a loot-based economy is a little unsustainable. It would seem to me, David, that that leaves you two options, either raise taxes or find more people to loot. I'm guessing raising taxes wouldn't be popular. Well, that guess is spot on, but they had nowhere to turn to in terms of finding somewhere to loot. And I should mention that even in their interior provinces, revenues had been declining, but with tax revenues or with the overall economy declining, and no new source of obvious loot outside for the caliph to turn to, when a new caliph came onto the throne in 869 and his troops demanded that he pay their back wages immediately on threat of mutiny, which, of course, was not an idle threat, he decided, in spite of how unpopular he knew it would be, to raise taxes dramatically in many cases, by almost 20%. Yikes, David. I'm glad I was not a taxpayer in the Abbasid Caliphate. So is this why our Muhammad, the poet, has been trying to start revolts? Well, it's certainly part of why he's believed that he could start revolts. He's an ambitious man. He's somewhat connected to the ruling family of the Abbasid Caliphate, apparently. Although, later on, he claims instead of being connected to the Abbasid family specifically, he actually claims a connection to Muhammad's son-in-law, which probably isn't true, but does make trying to determine his genealogy, let's just say, difficult. But he feels like he has an opportunity to raise the banner of revolt and succeed and possibly even become caliph. And with taxes seemingly rising for the entire decade and with the central government unstable, various people and groups have believed before 
that he has this ability and have joined him. And so he's going to Basra looking and believing that he has a new plan and that this time it's going to work. Okay, David, so if he's failed three times before to get a revolution started, what makes him think he's going to be successful this time in 869 in Basra? So now we need to talk about the situation around Basra specifically. So Basra is surrounded by salt marshes, which is not a great agricultural land, not what you want to hear when you're a farmer. So in order to be able to grow the food that is the basis of an economy in 869, Basra relies on an intensive network of irrigation canals and massive amounts of human labor. It's a very hard life to be a farmer somewhere where you need to turn over the topsoil every year because it gets so salty just from the water from the irrigation canals. Yeah, that doesn't sound easy, but impressive that they've got this system in place to actually be able to farm that land. Well, the thing is, being a farmer is miserable and has been miserable around Basra for a very long time. The fact that they're salt marshes is not new. And back when things were going well for the Abbasid Caliphate, back when the wars were still going and they were still conquering places, lots of farmers around Basra joined the military because it seemed like a better deal. You could join up, go and loot the infidel and bring the light of Islam to them, maybe if that's your thing, and also never spend a day worrying about irrigation canals and hauling topsoil and all of the other miserable portions of being a farmer in such inhospitable terrain. But of course, that created a problem for the city and the landowners around the city, which was the shortage of labor for their very labor-intensive agricultural system. And unfortunately, 869 and the centuries preceding it were not a particularly enlightened time. So the solution that the landowners and the merchants of Basra had turned to to solve this problem was slavery. They enslaved people and made them do the work. So where were they getting slaves from, David? Well, at first, anywhere they could grab them, the Turkic peoples of Central Asia, the peoples of the outlying Byzantine Empire in Europe. But as the time wore on, the decades wore on, the easiest place they found to kidnap slaves, and therefore the most profitable one, was East Africa, what the Arabic scholars referred to as Zanj. And they also used that term to refer to the people that they enslaved from East Africa, probably around modern Tanzania. The Zanj people, or just Zanj, are going to be the general referent for slaves around Basra. All right, David, so does that bring us up to speed on everything we need to know leading up to 869? Yes, I think we have the background for Ali bin Muhammad is arriving. And I suppose I should just mention his bold 
new plan that brings him back to Basra to try again, whereas the first time he tried to raise a revolt in Basra, he tried to raise a revolt from among the elites, the powerful, the connected, the merchants, and the tribal chieftains. And this time, he's looking in a different place. This time, Ali bin Muhammad intends to lead the Zanj. So a slave revolt is the plan. What could go wrong, David? Well, in the immediate aftermath of his announcing the revolt, very little. He quickly captures several overseers and frees the slaves who are with them. The slaves, not wanting to be slaves, naturally enough, are flocking to his revolt. He raises armies. And then he gets an additional advantage that your traditional slave revolt, or at least how we here in modern day North America might think of a traditional slave revolt, didn't have. Because the Abbasid Caliphate had another unusual to modern ears institution. They had armies of slave soldiers. Oh, I was going to ask that, David. I was thinking that, you know, one problem he might have is that you mentioned that the caliphate had a standing army, and if he's just got a bunch of slaves going up against professional soldiers, that would seem to be a problem, but he actually has professional soldiers among the slaves. Not amongst the first groups of slaves that he liberates, it should be noted, but when the early army garrisons to respond include, although at this time in history, the Abbasid army is still largely a professional one of free professionals, not slaves, but they include slaves amongst their garrisons to increase the number of infantry available. And those slaves also dislike being slaves, are also inspired by Ali bin Muhammad's revolt, and they mutiny and join him. And in addition to giving him a small number of trained troops right away, more importantly, they start training the slaves who have already joined up with his revolt, making them more effective, teaching them better tactics, how to use weapons, everything they didn't know that they need to know to fight the Abbasid Caliphate forces. So now, David, he has a real army behind him. This revolution's got some momentum. Can the caliphate put it down before it grows too big? Well, the short answer to that is no. The caliphate has other problems, especially in its own mind. Well, first off, the first caliph in 869 only lasts until 870. His name is Caliph al-Mutadi. And then he, too, is assassinated by his own troops. So clearly, he's really not focusing on putting down this revolt. And when Caliph al-Mutamid uh, replaces him, his initial concern is on Samara, the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, on restoring order there, on disciplining his troops so that they won't murder him the way they have some of the past caliphs, all of that set of concerns. So he doesn't focus on this revolt around Basra, which 
gives it time to grow and eventually seize the city. It does seem, David, that assassination is a real job hazard for these caliphs. So I can understand why he'd be worried about that. But now the revolution, the slave revolt, has actually seized the city of Basra. They have a home base, so to speak. Yes. And what's more, Ali bin Mutamid, who takes the name Al-Zanj, the African, although he's not African, but to represent his unity with his troops. Plus, every great leader needs a cool nickname. Every great leader does need a cool nickname. But he's clever. He seizes the city and wide areas around it. And then he takes advantage of the numerous canals. He builds small boats and he thinks about the tactics that will work to defend this kind of terrain and let him operate like a guerrilla, small organizations, small bands of his forces will move and set ambushes and fight rapidly and more mobile than their opponents, even though the Abbasid Caliphate has cavalry that he simply can't match because that cavalry can't operate across canals and salt marshes the way that his troops can. And he uses that innovative thinking and tactics that are well suited to the terrain where he's fighting to defeat the first major army that the Abbasid Caliphate sends to try and retake the city and put down the revolt. So not a good record here, David, for the Caliphate. First, they ignored the revolution for too long, let them get a foothold, let them get their tactics in place, and then the first army they send to put it down is defeated because of those new tactics. Do they have any cards left to play? Well, things are going to get worse before they get better because the defeat of one army creates an impression in the neighboring regions that the central government is weak and that Alzange is strong. He is the force to follow. And new areas, many of them with many fewer slaves or even with forces that aren't slaves start rising up and offering to join the revolt because the general view is that he's just trying to make himself caliph as has happened before and if he looks like a winner why not get in on that everybody likes to back a winner everybody loves a winner so suddenly the territory he's holding is expanding at a rapid pace and his forces are seemingly heading off in all directions and new members of the rebellion are rising up all across the caliphate and it's fast, it's inspiring, and he is committing everything he can to try and expand the revolt and head for Samara. So he has turned the tables and gone on the offensive here, David. That's right. Now... The advantage he has had has been his tactics, uh, his defensive use of different types of forces. Can he translate that into an offensive advantage? Can he actually translate these tactics that have been working for him into attacking Samara? Well, the short answer is no. Samara is north of Baghdad. I wouldn't expect you to know the geography of Iraq in that kind of detail, but Basra is in the south. Samara is in the far north. Baghdad's more in the middle. His troops advance on Baghdad 
but never quite make it. The high point of their offensive is still miles short of Baghdad city proper. And they quickly find that the superior Abbasid cavalry on the plains of central Iraq, where, which are well-suited for horses, have major tactical advantages over the Zanj forces that are mostly made up of infantry. And the rebels are quickly forced back from their high point, and many of the troops that signed up in the heady days of victory, especially the non-enslaved people who signed up because they thought that bin Muhammad would soon be caliph, desert the moment that it becomes clear that the advance is no longer continuing and they're not going to make it to Baghdad, let alone Samarra. This would seem to be a major setback here, David. Their weakness is that they can't translate this fight into a different type of terrain that favors the cavalry. Exactly. But the flip side is also true. The next attempt by the Abbasid forces to advance on Basra stalls out quickly almost as soon as it reaches the marshes and the terrain where their own strengths don't give them major advantages over the Zanj. All right, David, so we've got a bit of a standoff here in the south. The Zanj are stronger. As you move north, that favors the caliphate. What's it going to take to break the stalemate? Well, mostly what it takes for the caliphate forces to finally get the critical edge that they needed over the Zanj revolt is money. Because the caliph's reforms that he spent so much time on that it weakened his response to the Zanj revolt in the beginning were really, even though they were about the military in some ways, mostly about his finances. He cared a lot about making sure that he had enough money because he'd seen how lack of money had been so disastrous for his predecessors. So it's money, David, that will make the world go round. Indeed. And to understand why, we have to say something about the Zanj revolt that, again, is somewhat unusual to modern ears, which is that even though it was a revolt mostly by slaves, mostly attempting to free themselves, it was not an ideologically anti-slavery revolt. The Zanj continued, in some cases, to practice slavery in the territories that they had seized. They just freed themselves. They didn't want to be slaves. They didn't think of slavery as being evil in itself necessarily. And because they don't have a strong unifying ideology, and frankly not even a strong unifying religion, although bin Muhammad is clearly a Muslim and has preached Islam to his troops, he's been somewhat unclear, or at least our historical sources are unclear, even if he was a Shiite or a Sunni, let alone the sort of inspiring religious figure who would unify his forces with that element. And without a strong 
unifying force, his troops, some of them, were willing to go over to the caliphate if the caliphate offered them a better deal than bin Muhammad was. And so the financial reforms that the caliph had made allowed him to bribe several commanders of the Zanj forces to switch sides, which gave him a force which understood the kind of tactics, amphibious tactics for crossing canals and marshlands that had served the Zanj army in such good stead. And with those commanders teaching them, the Abbasid forces were able to start copying those tactics and achieving the successes that had previously eluded them. You know, David, in Hollywood, it's always that force of will, you know, one side really believing and just persevering. But in the real world, it just comes down to money. They buy out the tactics and find out what they need to do to defeat the Zange forces. Is this going to be the end for Alzange? Ultimately, yes. I should stop for a moment and say this is 883. We are 14 years after 869. So this has not been a short time. Pretty good run. But yes, this is the end. There's a final last stand. Many of his troops, in spite of what I just said about some of his troops being willing to switch sides for money, many of his troops will stand with Alzange to the end, and he eventually will die in battle with the last thousand of his black African troops fighting against an overwhelming Abbasid Caliphate force. Well, David, he tried to revolt three times and failed, but also escaped consequences. The fourth time, much better success, 14 years worth of success, but ultimately the consequences caught up to him. Indeed, the Zanj revolt would have huge consequences across the region. Obviously for Alzanj himself dying in battle, that's the ultimate consequence. But the revolt was viewed by the Abbasid Caliph as being caused by the manner in which slavery had been practiced around Basra. He really viewed this kind of plantation slavery where large numbers of agricultural slaves were used to work the land as being part of the problem. So he passed new laws which outlawed plantation slavery, not slavery as a whole, but the use of slaves as agricultural workers under overseers who were not themselves farmers. And that would be a surprisingly enduring legacy to this revolt for the next thousand years, until the 1890s actually, slightly more than a thousand years, there would be slavery in the modern Middle East and the Ottoman Empire, as it would become. But that slavery would be practiced very differently from the slavery that developed amongst European colonies around the world, because it would focus more on use of slaves in the military, which, strangely enough, the caliph did not view as 
one of the problems here and in point of fact would expand shortly thereafter and in domestic and urban contexts but much less in agricultural ones and this is largely a consequence of the Zanj revolt this was the lesson they took away so david 14 years it wasn't a short revolt but the consequences lasted for a millennium so it's quite the impact for Alzange and his revolt in Iraq. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. So we always like to end with something fun, a game, a quiz. Today, David, I have for you a historical song lyrics quiz. All right. Basically, as it's pretty much self-explanatory, I'm going to get you to fill in the lyrics on some songs about history. And I'll spare us all. I won't actually sing. I'll just give you some lyrics, David. Oh, thank goodness. For example, let's start with Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is about the troubles in Northern Ireland. And you two sings Sunday Bloody Sunday, how long must we what? I believe it's sing this song, Neil. Very good, David. One for one. Starting off, sing this song. It's all about lyrics. That's where this quiz is going. In Run to the Hills, which gives an indigenous perspective on the colonization of North America, Iron Maiden sings, White man came across the sea, he brought us pain and misery, he killed our tribes, he killed our creed, he took blank for his own need. What did he take? If I recall the song correctly, I believe it's he took our game for his own need. Two for two, David. You are a master lyricist. Next one, we're going to jump across genres again to The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot, where he sings, The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they called Kitchigumi? You got it, David. That's the Ojibwe name for Lake Superior. All right, another song. This one mentions over 100 headline events from over 40 years of history. We didn't start the fire by Billy Joel. He sings... We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Good job, David. Last one for you. You're four for four so far. In the Ballad of Ira Hayes, which Johnny Cash sang at the White House, he sings, There they battled up what hill? 250 men, but only 27 lived. Well, Ira Hayes was one of the men who raised the flag on Iwo Jima. So I'm going to say Iwo Jima Hill. You puzzled it out, David. A little piece of history there. As you mentioned, Hayes was one of the flag raisers in the famous photograph after the battle that is such a large part of the legend of the U.S. Marine Corps. David, excellent work on the quiz. Five for five on song lyrics. Yeah, that went really well. I think I've listened to your taste in music far too often. You know your stuff when it comes to songs about history and when it comes to podcasts about history. Thanks for telling us a story, David, and thanks for playing the game. I always enjoy both parts, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs>